Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and for many people, that means we need to start thinking about what's going to be on the menu for dinner that night. I know lots of us have already started thinking about that. Are you doing a classic turkey? Maybe you're sticking to vegetarian. How you prepare your food for the holiday takes a lot of thought, and if you want to get competitive edge on the food front, there's a ton of science, a ton of chemistry in food preparation and cooking, and no one better to answer your Thanksgiving food questions than my guest, Kenji Lopez-Alt, cookbook author and food scientist based in Seattle, Washington. Welcome back to the show, Kenji. Hey, thanks for having me. So much chemistry in food, isn't there? Uh, yes, quite a bit. <laughs> Let's start then with the centerpiece of most people's or many people's Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving mm-hmm. meals, the, the turkey. Now, mm-hmm. I know there's a big argument that seems to happen every year, and that is to brine or not to brine. Right. So what is brining, and what does it do to the meat? Right. So brining, what it does, so the act of brining is when you take your turkey or your chicken or whatever it is, and you dunk it in a, uh, a salt water solution and let it sit there generally overnight or so. Um, what it does is that, that salt water... Um, dissolve some of the muscle proteins uh, that that are kind of wrapped around the individual muscle fibrils. Um, And so when your turkey cooks, um, what happens is those proteins contract. um, And that's what causes juices to kind of squeeze out. Um, And so the hotter you cook it, the tighter those those proteins contract and the more juices get squeezed out. Um, what brining does is it kind of it kind of loosens up some of those proteins, it dissolves them so that they don't squeeze as tightly, which means that cooked to the same temperature, a turkey that has been brined uh, will retain more moisture, about seven percent mm. more moisture mm. um, than a than a uh, turkey that hasn't been brined. No. Um, now, of course, the debate is whether it's worth it or not. Um, right. What I recommend is a process called dry brining, which is uh, it gives you all the advantages of a wet brine, um, plus I think it tastes better, um, and it also means that you don't need to pull out that you know five gallon bucket or or the the cooler uh, to soak your turkey. Um, so essentially, all you do is you uh, season the turkey pretty heavily with salt. Um, if you can, you know you want to get like a little bit of salt up in between uh, the skin and the meat on the breast, um, in particular. That's what uh, your fingers you going it. under the skin then is what you're exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then you leave it uh, uncovered. Uh, on a rack in your fridge uh, at least overnight and up to two nights. Um, and so you get a lot of the same effects as brining, so it'll retain more moisture, um, but you'll also get kind of crispier skin because you're not soaking it in water mm. for, yeah. for a couple nights. Um, so uh, I, I <coughs> excuse me, I think it's a better method than just right. uh, traditional wet brining. Well, I know lots of brining recipes have sugar in it. What's the deal with sugar versus salt here? Yeah, well, sugar is mainly going to be for for flavoring and also to help it kind of brown a little bit. So if you do want to, you know, if you do want to put a little bit of sugar in your turkey, um, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a wet brine or a dry brine, um, that'll help it brown a little bit. Um, but you you do have to kind of be careful uh, that um, it, it doesn't go too far, you know, because turkey skin that's been rubbed with, with sugar, it can, you know, if you're doing it low and slow on a smoker, that's one thing. But if you're roasting and roasting it in the oven. Um, it mm-hmm. could start to you know brown a little bit too fast, um, in which case you just want to kind of check your oven temperature and, and ease back. I want to bring our listeners in on this, 844-724-8255, if you have a question or a suggestion, 844-724-8255. Uh, before we go to the break, I've got to ask you about this latest turkey recipe published in the New York Times this month. Mm-hmm which uses a key ingredient that I have to say as a New Yorker (laughs) and reading the New York Times, I was a little more than a little surprised to see, and that was mayonnaise. 
You're putting yeah. mayonnaise <laughs> on your turkey. What What is it about mayonnaise that you think results in a good turkey? Uh, well, you know, you, you don't need it to get a good turkey, of course. But, um, you know, what, I, what I've found is that... Uh, if I'm going to be adding some kind of herb flavoring to it, you know, so in the past I might have done uh, like a butter, an herb butter, or maybe an herb oil. Um, the difficulty with herb butters is that it's it's hard to get the butter at just that right temperature, I think, where you can kind of spread it all over the turkey and get a nice even coating. Um, whereas mayonnaise, you know, whether it's straight out of the fridge or at room temperature, it spreads and it holds its place really easily. So it makes it really easy to uh, get those herb flavors into uh, a sort of wet mix that you can then get all all on like an even coating on this on the sur on the surface of the turkey. Um, the other thing thing that mayonnaise offers over butter is that um, the protein in the mayonnaise, and it, this is true whether it's a a vegan mayonnaise which is stabilized with plant proteins or um, or a traditional mayonnaise stabilized with uh, egg proteins. Um, the protein in there is going to help uh, kind of solidify it. Uh, so instead of butter, which kind of melts away and just drips right. off. Um, the mayonnaise kind of helps keep all of the herbs and garlic or whatever it is you put in your in your in your uh, um, your mix uh, right right up there against the turkey as it roasts. And by the time it's done roasting, of course, there's no kind of it doesn't look like mayonnaise. Okay, it all breaks. And uh, it just I feel like better now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't put mayonnaise on your pastrami, do you? No, it's a different, no, <laughs> different topic. God, no. <laughs> uh, this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Uh, we're, we're talking about the the science of cooking, and we're taking your calls at eight four four seven two four eight two five five. I have I have a tweet that came in. It's kind of interesting. Why do we preheat the oven? John on Twitter wants to know, wants to know. Is it a logic uh -huh. logical thing about standardizing cooking times, or does the immediate heat do something different or better than letting the food come up to temperature with the oven? So it, it depends on the situa on the exact recipe and the situation and situation, but by and large, it would be the, the first uh, answer, which is that um, all ovens heat differently. Uh, and so, you know, an oven that could take 45 minutes to preheat, you know, someone, someone's oven might take 45 minutes to preheat, someone's ovens might, might take 15 minutes to preheat. So if you're putting your food in as the oven's preheating, you're building a lot of uh, unpredictability into the timing and into that recipe. So um, allowing ovens to properly preheat does standardize time. In certain recipes, um, you know, there, there might be certain types of styles of roasting where you would start at a really high temperature right. uh, and then kind of drop the temperatures as you go along. Um, with those types of recipes, definitely preheating um, is what gives you that sort of blast at the beginning that allows you to kind of sear surfaces. Um, so in those cases, there is sort of a functional benefit to preheating. Mm. Same with like if you're mm -hmm. baking a pizza or a loaf of bread, you, you really want to properly preheat not just the oven, but also the stone or the steel that you're baking on, uh, because all of that um, absorbed energy in the walls is what's going to help your, your pizza or your bread get the, the oven spring, you know, with the nice big bubbles in them and the right. nice char on the surface. So in, in many cases, the... Um, Preheating the oven is a sort of a functional thing as well as a well, practical thing as a recipe writer. Is, the, is there a better pan than an, an, what kind of pan to put the turkey in physics-wise that will absorb <coughs> or radiate the heat best? Yeah, so I would say do not use the standard um, uh, deep-walled uh, roasting pan. You know, I have like a roasting pan that has like walls that are maybe three inches tall. Right. Uh, and it's made of heavy stainless steel. Um, and it comes with a V-rack meant for poultry. Um I think this is one of the worst ways you can actually cook poultry because what it does is the uh, the pan kind of shields the bottom of the bird, so the area where the uh, the thighs are meeting the backbone. It's kind of shielding that area and it's preventing both 
uh, radiant heat from the oven and more importantly convection so hot air flowing around the oven from getting to that area um, and so what ends up happening is that that area cooks really slowly and that's the part where you're also supposed to take the temperature because that's the part right. you want actually cooked to the highest temperature um, and so by the time that comes up to the right temperature everything else and particularly the breast is like heavily overcooked uh, you should be using just a regular uh, rimmed baking sheet like a sheet pan um, so a, you know a half size sheet pan I think it's like 23 inches by 18 inches um, that'll fit um, like a uh, 14 up to 14 pound or so um, spatchcock turkey or whole turkey um, so that with a wire rack set in it um, so the idea is that you're going to get a lot better circulation uh, under and around the turkey than you would with a deep-sided uh, pan and so your, your cooking is going to be a lot more even all right let's go lots of of course you can imagine lots of folks want to talk about uh, cooking paul in conway arkansas hi paul Hey, Ira, I'm a long, long-time listener. Sorry, great program, uh, previous great programs before. I'd like to comment. Um, I've cooked many a turkey over the years. I like to cook. I really appreciate your guest smarts. What about fried turkey, guys? You, you northerners are missing out. <laughs> we, we have it up here. We've tried it. We've almost scalded ourselves with hot oil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love a fried turkey. I love I love a good fried turkey. Um, yeah, I think I think space wise, it's a little it's a little hard. It's more intimidating. <laughs> well, what what does frying do physically to the turkey? And 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 thank you, Paul, for that call. Uh, what what goes on in the turkey that's different from roasting it to frying it? Well, so the, I mean, the main thing is that you're you're transferring heat at a much faster rate. Um, so you're um, you're you're really going to get extremely crispy skin, um, and all the meat around the outside is also going to crisp up. Uh, and then you're going to be getting you're cooking really fast. So one of the important things that frying does is that you're circulating. Uh, your so in in an oven, you know, when you have a whole turkey, you can imagine the um, the space inside the turkey. You know, the cavity where you might traditionally stuff it for example um even if it's unstuffed even if there's air in there it's kind of it, it kind of ends up sitting in place and so you don't get very much good circulation inside the uh turkey as far as heat goes right um so that's one of the reasons why it takes so long to roast a turkey um and why you know why spatchcocking is so much faster but deep frying a turkey um because oil is much more viscous it kind of it kind of flows in and out um, and so you're really getting hot oil inside the turkey as well as outside mm -hmm. um, so you're cooking it from both sides really really fast um, so what that means is that it it drastically cuts down uh, on the total cooking time right um, while also giving you really sort of crispy skin um, and so you know and as long as you kind of don't overshoot the final temperature as long as you're very careful about using your thermometer um, it can also be ex like an extremely juicy way to... Right. Okay, we've talked turkey. turkey long enough. Let's move on to... Because right. there are a lot of people who, who are making vegetarian dishes. Uh, and uh -huh. and uh, we've got questions about what's the best way to make a really good vegetarian gravy. Is it the heat, the cornstarch, or something else that really makes it work? Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, I think one of the things that makes it difficult to make a good vegetarian gravy compared to... Uh, a meat-based gravy is that meats give you those um, uh, those, those amino acids, um, so you know glutamic acid and inosinic acid, and these things that we get, we associate with savoriness. Um, so you kind of want to look for sources to um, uh, replace or enhance those uh, savory notes. Um, and mm -hmm. so, <coughs> excuse me, when it comes to vegan or vegetarian um, gravy, I think uh, making a really good mushroom stock. 
um, maybe adding some kombu, you know, like Jap- Japanese style kombu seaweed, right, right. Um, uh, sea kelp to it uh, to really sort of boost the umami factor. Using dried mushrooms like porcinis uh, can really improve uh, the umami factor in a in a in a stock um and then also doing using fermented things so things like soy sauce and miso paste um i think i, I think i have a recipe for a vegan gravy on serious eats that uses kind of all of those things uh and then you just thicken it up at the end and it can be really That's, really well, delicious you know i really enjoyed your talking about the physics of roasting in in the oven and we have a question from karen in kansas city missouri hi karen uh-huh. oh it's carrie carrie i'm hi. sorry oh no problem uh one of my biggest issues is always oven space on the day uh-huh. and trying to make sure I'm not overcrowding. And I've learned that crock pots can be a great alternative for some side. So what's some good suggestions on when you know you've overcrowded your oven, how much space do you need if you're you know, <laughs> kind of timelining out you know, to have everything ready at the same time and let the turkey rest and all that stuff? Yeah. Good question. I mean, you, so I think, yeah, I mean, a good a crock pot can definitely work well for, for, for some things. Um, uh, you know, having having some of your dishes be okay at room temperature is also, you know, I think, you know, that you can make like a grilled vegetable salad or a roasted vegetable salad um, that is good warm, but is also fine at room temperature. Um, so thinking about dishes that uh, you don't really have to worry about um, as far as sitting goes uh, is a good idea. Um, when it, you know, when it comes to oven space, I, I at, at Thanksgiving, you know, I grew up um, in a New York apartment, you know, so little galley kitchen with a tiny stove. Um, and I think the way we treated the oven on Thanksgiving was that towards towards dinner time, it would sort of just become the warmer, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me, everything else was baked ahead of time. So the turkey was roasted, um, the sides were, you know, the stuffing was baked in its dish. Um, the the Brussels sprouts were roasted and all kind of in heat-proof containers. And then um, once the last thing that you actually need to bake or cook in the oven is done, uh, mm. then you can just pile everything back in to rewarm. Um, you know, and I think with dishes, you know, Thanksgiving-type dishes are almost built for that, you know. They're built, right. they're, they're a lot of sort of casseroles and baked things and things that are kind of just fine reheated. Um, and are almost even sometimes better reheated. Yeah, they taste better. So I don't think yeah. you have to worry too much about, you know, for most Thanksgiving dishes, I don't think you have to worry about them uh, going, you know, straight piping hot directly out of the oven onto the table. All right. Um, I think reheating them and holding them is totally fine. Let's go to Slushy in California. Hi, Slushy. I'm sorry, I got your name correct? Yeah. Hi, go ahead. Hi. Um, My question was, are biscuits, something that you can have for Thanksgiving and also Kenji do you have a solution for every time someone makes biscuits the dough comes out not not sticking together well and when you bake it it comes out hard mm. yeah what what mm. is slushy doing wrong there <laughs> yeah. um <laughs> So I, I definitely think you can have biscuits for Thanksgiving. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't think of any occasion where you you can't have biscuits. Um, uh, I think they'd be great for Thanksgiving. Um, as far as the the second question, um, I think I'd need to know a little bit more about exactly what's going on. Um, so it sounds like the dough is coming out too dry, um, but the biscuits are also coming out too hard. Um, yeah. And all I can They're think is that out. maybe. 
maybe you need to be using a lighter flower. So instead of uh, like an all-purpose flower, using a um, something like white lily or um, or a you know a biscuit flower or a cake flower um, that will uh, be a little bit lower in gluten. Um, so you know, so more tender. That's a good idea, but my mom she'll use she'll make she'll use the all the ingredients because we have like a uh -huh. whole book of ingredients that we kind of use for the biscuits. Uh -huh. And whenever she makes them using the recipe, they turn out incredible. But I'll use the same recipe, and uh -huh. they'll turn out like literal cookies. <laughs> so <laughs> sounds like maybe you need to maybe you need to work with your mom more closely. Yeah, yeah, that 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 is a good solution. <laughs> All right, yeah. so when I kind of have family over, and I feel like if I do a baking assignment for my class, and I give them that, they're kind of gonna my reputation is kind of going to be ruined. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's so. embarrassing. All right. So, she, we got to go on, but thank you. That's an interesting phone call. Maybe your mom can help you out. Thanks for calling. Uh, let's talk about, you, you mentioned before uh, a little bit about leaving stuff out on the counter, and this is a question we get asked uh -huh. all the time. How long can I leave things out on the countertop and feel safe that the bacteria is not going to do its thing? <laughs> um, it, you know, it depends on, so, you know, there's no, there's no hard and fast rule for this. Um, there are, you know, there are what, what um, the government requires restaurants to do it to, um, which the sort of the easy version is that it can't spend more than four hours between the temperatures of 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 140 degrees Fahrenheit total. So that includes the time that it takes to heat it up, the time it takes it to cool it down if you're putting it in the, in the fridge. Um, and the time it, uh, it takes to prepare and serve. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's, that's not the very long. Limit. That is four hours. Four hours, yeah. yeah. You know, and it, it, it realistically, though, um, you know, that's sort of like the, the extremely safe version. Mm -hmm. um, uh, realistically, if you're, ro if you're cooking in your own home kitchen um, and you roast a, you know, you, 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 you pull the green bean casserole out at 2 p.m. and dinner's not until 7 um, I I would feel totally comfortable serving that, mm. um, you know, as long as you're, you you don't have like the uh, like the cat jumping over it or the kids stepping in it or anything. Um, but you know, as long as you keep a relatively clean house and your your ingredients are uh, not moldy to begin with, um, I, I you know I think that it's it's totally safe. Okay. To, um, before we run out of those rules exactly. Oh, sounds good. Uh, before we run out of time, I've got some other questions. Some of them from our own staff members, and one of them is uh, sometimes bad mashed potatoes are described as gluey. What's uh -huh. going on there from a chemical perspective? That gluey, and how do you ungluey them? <laughs> uh, you can't ungluey the glue, the gluey mashed potatoes. Um, so essentially, what's happening is that um, you're overactivating the starch, um, and so there's a couple ways that can happen. One of them is that you could be the potatoes could be kind of boiled too violently for too long before mashing them, um, and so they're kind of getting waterlogged, uh, and then uh, and then the starch molecules kind of expand and burst and and and. Oh, we sort of we sort of lost them there. <laughs> Let's see if, well, uh, see what happens when you talk about gluey mashed potatoes. <laughs> you lose the line. Let, let's see if uh, let's see if we can get, get some phone calls in while, we, while we're waiting. Let's go to Bob in Spokane, Washington. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Hi there. Go ahead. Okay. Well, my favorite way to prepare uh, Thanksgiving turkey is using the sous vide method, and that's where uh, the food is placed in a food-safe plastic bag, 
and then cooked at a lower temperature in a water bath. Uh, typically, I'll take and uh, section the turkey, remove the leg quarters, the wings, and the breast meat. And one leg quarter and one wing goes in a one-gallon plastic bag. And then uh, the breast meat goes in another gallon plastic bag. And then that's uh, it's dry brined with salt, and you can use herbs and spices on it. And then it goes, the dark meat goes in starting at only 153 degrees, I believe it is. And it stays in for about four or five hours. And then you add the breast meat to that and drop the temperature down to about 145 degrees, as I recall. And then the whole thing takes about five hours to cook. And when it's done, it's juicy, it's flavorful. And then you take it out of the plastic bags, put it in a hot oven for a few minutes to brown it, and it's delicious. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of preparation, isn't it? It is, but, you know, it, it turns out so well. And, and people say, well, yeah, but it's not getting up to the 165 degrees. Well, because it stays so long at those lower temperatures, actually pasteurize it. So wow. it's safe at those temperatures. Who knew? Thank, thank you for that uh, suggestion, Bob, and your experiences. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's see if we can get another phone call in before we have to say goodbye, because we are running out of time. Let's go to Danielle in Santa Cruz, California. Hi. Hi. Is this uh, this Science is, Friday? It is, si- for a second. it is Science Friday. <laughs> we're having a little technical difficulty, so we're hoping you're going to save us, Danielle. Uh, we'll see about that. Uh, I just wanted to ask, my mom always cooked thanksgiving turkey in a really deep mexican clay pot or called olla de barro and i'm wondering what Mm. how that makes it juicier and whether that's a an actual scientific phenomenon that would make the turkey cook Mm. juicier Mm, i think kenji is back kenji did you hear that question no uh, we didn't. We didn't have. Them. Why does it make it juicier? I wish. I wish I had an answer for you, but uh, I'll see if we can. I'll see if we can get an answer for you offline. Okay. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Let's let's see if we get one more call in here. Let's go to Frank in Dillsburg, Pennsylvania. Dillsburg. Where is that, Frank? Uh, that's right outside of Harrisburg, PA. It's about uh, maybe twenty miles west of Harrisburg, little uh, little rural town. And you have that's a. You have something you're going to share with us? Yeah, just a, a just a quickie here. Uh, I know you're almost done with the Mayo uh, uh, issues, but um, I stumbled on a couple years ago to using mayonnaise on the salmon that I grill, and I used to use butter and then put spices on it and grill it on both sides. And it sounds really disgusting when you explain to people or they look that you're putting mayo on it. But it is remarkable, um, and I just understood why today because it, it doesn't drain off. And the, the tenderness and the taste and, I guess, the conveyance of some of the spices makes it really good. My wife is a really great cook, and she thinks it's the best salmon she's ever had. We go all over and eat it. So it's really tender, tasty, really easy to do. You know, just put the mayo on both sides, put your spices on, grill it, and it's wonderful. This My is mouth is watering, time. Frank. <laughs> it's, it's really good, although it sounds really disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and you discovered it on salmon, and then you... Did it for your turkey? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try it for the turkey now, too. I never heard of that, but it makes sense. It oh. really does seem to work. Well, I will thank you for, for thank you for taking time to be with us today, Frank. That's a great suggestion. Well, thank you. Your program is wonderful. The diversity is great. I, I love you. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And, and we have run out of time. That is about all the time we have for now. 
And, uh, of course, if you want to uh, hear from if you want questions about what to do behind, you know, are your favorite Thanksgiving foods, we've got some hits up there on our website. I want to thank Kenji Lopez-Alt, cookbook author and food scientist based in Seattle for, well, we had so we had him on for most of the hour. We had a little bit of technical difficulties, difficulties at the end, but boy, I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Uh, 